1: Hello and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network, where every few weeks we feature a newer book by an author in the field of Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Matthew Long. This week we'll be featuring the work of Muhammad and the Supernatural. This book is... Hello and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network, where every few weeks we feature a newer book by an author in the field of Islamic studies. I'm your host, Matthew Long. This week we'll be featuring the work of Muhammad and the Supernatural. This book is by Rebecca Williams and is one of the newest additions to the Rutledge Studies in Classic Islam series. Despite the Quranic proclamation that the only miracle which served as proof of Muhammad's prophethood was the Quran, Miracles and supernatural events have been ascribed to Muhammad in numerous Islamic literary and intellectual genres. Professor Williams of the University of South Alabama delivers a unique and fresh look at the supernatural in Islam. Specifically, she explores how the Muslim authors al tabari and Ibn Kathir understood and interpreted supernatural phenomena attributed to Muhammad. Restricting her analysis to the works of Tafsir, or Quranic Interpretation and Biography, or Sira, produced by Al-Tabari and Ibn Kathir, she focuses on four life events for Muhammad. His conception, his first occasion of public preaching, a vignette concerning a warning sent by one of his followers, and a failed assassination attempt upon, upon Muhammad's life are prominent because they each feature some sort of supernatural occurrence. These events, in turn, are connected to important themes for Muslims in the medieval era, respectively, sex, politics, betrayal, and wrath. Professor Williams' fascinating comparative investigation of the treatment of these supernatural occurrences by Al-Tabri and Ibn Khaldūn demonstrates important similarities and differences between these two scholars. Moreover, the reader becomes conscious of the milieu in which each scholar constructed their text. While this is a significant contribution to the field of Islamic studies, the topics addressed are of great benefit to scholars of literature and folklore, and its contents are accessible to a wide spectrum of readers." Hello, welcome to the New Books Network on Islamic Studies. My name is Matthew Long, and today we're going to be talking with Rebecca Williams about her new book, Muhammad and the Supernatural. Rebecca, how are you today?
0: I'm good, Matt. Thanks. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Well, before we actually get started talking about your work, um, it would be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your biography.
0: Well, I uh, I got my PhD in Islamic studies from McGill University in uh, 2007 and uh, before that I had gotten my master's degree in history from the University of West Florida uh, in December of 1997. And it, I had started looking at uh, Islamic studies in general, oddly enough, due to a fiction Uh, a work of fiction by Louis L'Amour called The Walking Drum and I was sort of in this extended, I had an extended illness as an undergraduate and a friend of mine suggested that I read this book and Louis L'Amour is famous for his westerns and I said you know I'm not really into westerns and they said no 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 this isn't a western you've got to read it. And so this book talks about a young man during the medieval period whose father is captured by corsairs And so he traveled across medieval Europe and the Byzantine Empire and the Islamic Near East in search of his father. And I was really struck by how the author really contrasted medieval European civilization with medieval Byzantine and, again, the Islamic Near East. And it was the first experience that I had in reading anything about the Islamic Near East. And I was struck by how uh, L'Amour had portrayed medieval European civilization at the time, and I think this is the 11th century, as being very dogmatically rigid and, uh, you know, not a very enlightened place to be, and he contrasted this with Islamic civilization, which was, uh, you know, public baths and libraries and, and very intellectually stimulating. And so it really just sort of piqued my interest, and I Focused my studies on that when I was able to, and then for my MA program, uh, for my thesis, I looked at the uh, the historiography, the modern historiography surrounding the uh, life story of the Prophet Muhammad, and and all of the controversies surrounding that source material, the the. Gap in time between the events described and our earliest written sources and were the sources, you know, predominantly oral or written and all of those controversies that were quite uh, prevalent, especially in the, you know, from the 70s through uh, the 90s. And then for my PhD program, I focused, you know, I, I had sort of gotten into this issue of, okay, are the sources historically accurate or not? Can we use them to uh, determine the historical events? And I, for my doctoral program, when I started working on my PhD under the direction of Don Little, I sort of turned away from that question and, and decided to evade it altogether rather than attempting to answer it and uh, instead focused on, all right, well, how did the people who wrote these works perceive these events? And so rather than attempt to look at the life of Muhammad or the life story of Muhammad as you know potentially indicative or not of, of actual historical events, instead I, I chose to look at how later generations of Muslims perceived that story and how that changed over time. And in looking at the historical accounts, what really struck me were the differences in the miracle stories, and specifically I focused on uh, Atabri, who was a 9th and 10th century uh, scholar in Abbasid Baghdad and very well known for his works of history in tafsir, um, and just the difference between his work and the work of a much later scholar, Ibn Kathir, who lived and worked in Damascus during the Mamluk period in the 14th century. And there was this huge difference between the number of miracle stories, which is to be expected. There's about 400 years difference between these two men. But the fact that Ibn Kathir pulled these stories from sources that would have been available to a Tabri, it just sort of got me wondering about, okay, so why did Tabri not include these stories? Why did Ibn Kathir choose to include these particular stories? and then i expanded that to a comparison of you know their works in in the uh, in the, the the exegesis of the quran as well and that really expanded the the picture of how these later generations really viewed the miracle stories of uh the prophet muhammad and and not many people had looked at these uh particular types of so- stories very seriously before and so that made it kind of challenging to put my work into the, the historiography, which, you know, that's the first part of any doctoral dissertation is you've got to put your, your, your own work into uh, the larger scholarly field. And, and so I, I expanded the study and, and tried to look at it from different ways in order to figure out, okay, how am I going to approach this? and my external reader for my dissertation was uh Walid Sala at University of Toronto and he was just very helpful uh gave a lot of good comments that really helped turn the dissertation into a uh, a much better work and uh that's where i ended up <laughs>
1: Okay, And I mean, it basically from that dissertation then expanded into this larger work that we have here in front of us. Um, And, you know, Al-Tabri and Ibn Kathir, I mean, those are two major authors as well, are they not?
0: They are. Now, Tabri is admittedly much better known, at least among scholars, than, uh, than Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir is more popular with uh, modern Muslims predominantly because of his relationship with his teacher Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, who, you know, his works would go on to inform the uh, the modern Salafi and Wahhabi movements. And so Ibn Kathir is, you know, he's sort of seen as almost writing Ibn Taymiyyah's coattails, so to speak. But I, I did have difficulty finding uh, works, especially secondary works, on just Ibn Kathir himself, separate from uh, Atabri, or at least as separate as, as could be from Atabri, or sorry, from uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. And it's, uh, I, I've been very fortunate in that lately Ibn Kathir is receiving a bit more scholarly attention as you know, an, an individual author in his own right. And uh, so that's kind of exciting that that these two uh, these two authors are actually I mean whereas Attabri had already been very well known that Kathir is starting to be taken a little more seriously. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, as you uh, start off in your in your work, um, you start to discuss about you know the elements of the supernatural, which is actually kind of interesting because that's actually not exactly what the Quran teaches. Concerning Muhammad's life,
0: sure, and and that's the um, that's the the real interesting thing that that got me in, started on focusing on the supernatural. That you know you've got this Quranic command almost that that Muhammad is not going to perform miracles. We constantly have uh, the Quran talking about the unbelievers or those around Muhammad asking him. For proof, for some kind of miraculous proof uh, of his role as prophet, and consistently the response is, you know, I'm just a man like yourselves. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm the messenger of God, but I, I you know, my miracle is the Quran. And uh, and yet, when you get to all of these extra Quranic works, uh, you know, whether it be prophetic biography or Uh, you know, the Hadith compilations or Kalam or Tafsir, you have hundreds of different miracle stories um, in thousands of different reports, and at least as far as Tabri and Ibn Kathir are concerned, they they really didn't seem to have a real problem with this apparent contradiction between the Quranic command that that Muhammad performed no miracles, and yet the fact that Muhammad is performing miracles left and right uh, in these other uh, extra quranic genres and And it really it focused you know the 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 reason that I compared these genres between prophetic biography and uh, Quran exegesis was in part because of this. It's like, okay, so if the Quran is saying Muhammad, Performs no miracles. We've got all of these miracle stories in the Sira. Well, what does the Tafsir have to say? And it's interesting that Tabari and Ibn Kathir approach these two genres uh, in, in very unique ways. Whereas Tabari is very careful at times to differentiate how he portrays a particular event in his Sira, uh, Ibn Kathir, or you know, sorry, Tabri portrays this uh, particular event in his sira as opposed to how he portrays it in his tafsir. And so you see Tabri really working to differentiate these two genres. Ibn Kafir, on the other hand, is more interested in putting forward this program of reform that is admittedly connected to Ibn Taymiyyah, where you have things must rely on the Quran and then on these authoritative hadith, And so Ibn Kathir is far more interested in that program, both in his uh, prophetic biography and in his tafsir, than he is in differentiating these two genres.
1: And, you know, when you make this compare, as you're doing the exploration and the comparison, it's, you've really focused on um, four primary events that, uh, you know, take us through The entirety of your work, and can you kind of tell our readers about those four events?
0: Sure. So there are, as I said, there are hundreds of uh, miracle stories in uh, both Tauburi and Immokazeer's works, and I opted, instead of a large overview, I opted to focus on four stories in particular uh, for a variety of reasons, but mainly because these are not particularly pivotal events in the life of Muhammad. So they're not going to be connected uh, with, with one exception. uh, And I'll get to that in a little bit. They're not really connected to these huge issues. I mean, they are themes that are important to the medieval Muslim community, but, you know, they're not as big as say the battle of Badr or, uh, you know, these, these, much, much larger issues. So I think that you can get a better sense of, you know, if these authors are working to put forward their own interpretation of events on stories that that really even aren't all that significant or all that earth-shattering, then, you know, how much more would they be putting their own interpretation of events onto these uh, much larger events. So I, I opted uh, to look at two events during uh, Muhammad's time in Mecca. Uh, the first and and this sort of connects to how I divided things in in my uh, dissertation as well. That I've You've got the period of Muhammad's life before he receives the first revelation uh, of the Quran and then that period in Medina or in Mecca still from the time he receives that first revelation until his hijrah to Medina, and then from the Medinan period, uh, you have these the, the two stories that I chose really work with each other. Again, uh, you have an earlier before uh, the, before Muhammad uh, conquers Mecca, and then in that very brief period uh, between the conquest of Mecca and Muhammad's death. And I think these represent four uh, very important points in, in Muhammad's life and in his the development of him as uh, both a prophet who performs miracles, but also as the leader of this expanding community. So the first one actually uh, is the story of Muhammad's conception. And it revolved around the issue of, this light that is seen in uh, Muhammad's father, Abdallah ibn Abd al-Talib, in his face before he marries Amina, who is Muhammad's mother, and uh, before she conceives Muhammad. Now, Atabri, and and Ibn Kathir, to a certain extent as well, they put the story in the Sira very much in this context of Islam's role, its, its relationship to the other Abrahamic phase. And so you have, when Abdullah is on his way to be married to Aminah, he's stopped by two women. Uh, one is uh, related to a, uh, a famous Christian, and so the, the argument is that she is likely Christian herself. Um, and the second woman is a Jewish soothsayer, and both of these women propose uh, sexual relations with Abdullah, uh, and they even offer to uh, give him a number of camels, uh, typically the number is 100 camels, uh, in, in return. And he rejects both of them, he says, no, 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 I'm with my father, I've got to go. And so then his father takes him and marries him to Aminah, and they consummate their marriage, And then he goes back to each of these women and says, Well, you know, hey, how about it? And uh, so they both say, No, no. When I made the offer before, there was a light in your eyes, and I wanted that light for myself. And so the light is now gone. So, you know, really, I don't have any use for you. And so the theme of this is that, you know, you've got this light of prophecy that is denied to this representative. Of Judaism and to this representative of Christianity, and instead goes to uh, a woman whose genealogy is supposed to be, you know, the best among the Arabs at that time. And so this whole idea of the relationship between Islam and these Abrahamic faiths, especially in in Tabri's version of the story, really points to, uh, you know, the fact that this light of prophecy was intended uh, all along for Amina, and that these other traditions are, you know, they're being sort of left behind, and so this is Tabri's perception of this, the importance of this event. Now, Tabri includes a third story, where uh, Abdullah has an additional wife, and where the story takes place at a time other than uh, his wedding to uh, to Amina, and, and Again, there are similarities. The third wife, you know, there's this issue of, of sexual contact, of the light that's shown in his face, and for whatever reason, he goes to Amina instead, and once she, uh, once they have intercourse and she conceives Muhammad, then the light is no longer there. And so this third woman, Tabari uh, could potentially also represent Arabian paganism. So you've got now not only the two Abrahamic faiths, but Arabian paganism as well being left behind. And so Islam is, is the, the fulfillment of everything that came before it. The problem for this, when we get to Ibn Kathir, who does not include the story of this additional wife, is that this, would present too many complications. By the time we get to Ibn Kathir, the story of Muhammad's conception has really closed in on itself. Tabri allows for reports that have nothing to do with the supernatural. He, you know, Amina is convinced by her family to marry Abdullah because he's good looking. And so she's like, yeah, okay, sure. Um, and and so by the time we get to Ibn Kathir, he does not include... Any reports that are not connected in some way to the supernatural. So by the time we get to Ibn Kathir, Muhammad's conception had to be connected to a supernatural event, whether it's the attempted seduction by these women or he also includes the story of uh, a man examining uh, Abdullah's father, Abd Muttalib, telling him, okay, well you need to marry somebody from this tribe because then you'll have both rulership and prophecy. And so we see then this connection, him marrying his son Abdallah to a woman of this particular uh, tribe. And so for Ibn Kathir, it has to be connected to a supernatural event. Whereas Tabari, yes, he has these supernatural events, but, you know, he's willing to admit that, you know, there are other possibilities. And so then when you bring in how they relate this story in the Qur'an, Ibn Kafir includes a Quran quotation. At Tabari does not for the entire time uh, leading up to the first revelation. At Tabari does not connect any Quran verse to any of the uh, the supernatural stories, and but he does continue this idea of the the role of God and the will of God in deciding. Where that light of prophecy would go, and so the for both Tabari and Ibn Kathir, the importance in their uh, tafsir of the verse connected to this is that you know God decides who will be prophet and who will not, and Ibn Kathir chooses to focus on genealogy as this proof of Muhammad's uh, status as prophet, and he even relates this story of. Uh, this meeting between uh, Muhammad's uncle, Abu Sufyan, who at that time was uh, an enemy of his, and the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius. And Heraclius has this dream, and he calls for these people to be brought before him, and Abu Sufyan says, yes, okay, there's this guy, you know, this kin, and he's claiming to be a prophet. And Heraclius asks these questions, and one of the questions is, is his lineage good among you? And Abu Sufyan is forced to admit that yes, it's quite good. And so we have Ibn Kathir you know, using this idea of Muhammad's lineage as a proof of his prophet and as his prophethood. And this connects to that theme of, you know, divine intervention in who will receive this light of prophecy, who will, who gets to determine who is a prophet and who is not. And so you have all of these interconnected themes between the, the the story in the Sira and their interpretation of the, uh, the verse of the Quran that is connected to this story. So very
1: interesting. Oh, go ahead.
0: Right, no, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> oh,
1: no. Um, so that story then makes up the, uh, first, uh, the uh, first part of your work. Right, And so that deals with Muhammad's birth. And then from there, you then move on to the next section where you address a second story.
0: Right. And so then in the next section, in, in the, the second part of the work, I look at a much later event where Muhammad has already received his first revelation, uh, his first revelatory visit from uh, the Archangel Gabriel. And he's been uh, preaching in secret for about three years until he receives uh, this Quranic command to openly pronounce the message that that God has uh, sent down to him. And so this is where we see the beginning of his public preaching. And this story, for both Tabari and Ibn Kathir, is separated into two elements. Both present a, a public uh announcement by muhammad where he goes to mount Hira outside of mecca and he makes this you know he calls everyone to him and he says you know i I, i'm a warner i'm here to warn you of a terrible chastisement and uh, you know his his fellow meccans are like um okay and 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 so he doesn't get a very good response there and his his another uncle abu lahab who Castigates him for this and says, you know, you called us here for this. And, uh, you know, so he, he sort of publicly criticizes him. The other story that, that both Tabri and Imakathir put forward is a private meeting between Muhammad and about 30 or 40 of the male members of his clan. And in this private meeting, this is where we see a supernatural event where, where he miraculously divides uh food and drink to feed everyone. So, you know, the story is narrated by uh, Muhammad's cousin and future son-in-law Ali, who states, you know, Muhammad had me call these men together and he had me prepare food and drink, but there was only enough for one person. And yet Muhammad, after, you know, taking a, a bite of the meat and after telling them all to eat and drink, you know, there was enough for everyone with, you know, with plenty left over. And in, you know, in some versions of the story, there's, you can see the traces of their, their fingers in the food. And in other versions, uh, the food, looks as though it has been untouched even though each man eats and drinks his fill. And the difference too in these two very uh, different versions of events, in the public announcement it's it's not horribly controversial, but in this private meeting, Muhammad follows up his his miraculous division of food and drink with a request, you know, he tells them, you know, I'm I've brought you the best of this world and the next, and he asks for someone to help him, to aid him, uh, to be his brother and his successor or deputy. And of all the men assembled, Ali is the only one who volunteers. And so we have this very politicized uh, incident where Muhammad accepts Ali as his Helper and his successor, a deputy, and he announces this to the assembled men, and uh, you know he says, "So you know, so obey him as you would me." And the men kind of laugh because Ali is is very young and sort of physically unfit at this time, and and uh, so they say, they laugh and they say to Ali's father, Abu Talib, you know, ah, uh, he's he's telling you to obey your son, and they leave. So. Tabari treats this very differently in between the two genres. Now in the Sirah, Tabari follows this story up with another report that takes place later during Ali's caliphate and, you know, someone asks Ali, "How did you become commander of the faithful, uh, commander of the believers and not your paternal uncle?" Uh, signifying potentially uh, al- Abbas, who would go on to be claimed uh, as the uh, origin of the, the later Abbasid dynasty. And so it, you've got Ali making sure to draw attention from everyone in the room, and then he tells this same story. So the, story, the basic story is the same of Muhammad's private meeting with his kin, but it's put into this narrative context of you know, the ostensibly the rights of the Shia to rule or the Alids to rule versus the rights of the Abbasids and, you know, going back to the progenitors of those two bloodlines. And but, uh, Atabri, you know, infamously does all of this without comment. He puts these reports in, but he doesn't really give you a lot of guidance as to what his own interpretation of events is. So you're sort of left to yourself to see these these different reports. Ibn Kathir, on the other hand, leaves you with no doubt about what his opinion uh, is regarding these events. And Ibn Kathir goes out of his way. Uh, first of all, he does not include the second uh, report that, that tabri includes in his Sira. Uh, but Ibn Kathir, he completely dissects these reports that, has, that have Muhammad choosing Ali and naming Ali as his successor, and he attacks their uh, chains of authority. He says, oh, this person was a, you know, he was recognized as, as a she and a liar. Uh, he reinterprets the the text of the report itself, itself, saying, you know, Muhammad really didn't mean successor. He meant, you know, somebody who would Act as executor of of his estate if he should be killed in the course of his mission. And then he even brings in a quote from the Quran saying, you know, no, 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 Muhammad was promised by God that he wouldn't die and that God would fulfill all of these uh, roles that Muhammad had asked of his closest kin and that Ali was the only one who volunteered for. And so this is how they treat the story in the Sira. And you see a big difference in this story in particular between how they treat the story in the Sira and how they treat the story in the Tafsir. And there are a number of different verses that are connected to this story. And, uh, you know, through over a hundred separate reports in his Tafsir, Tabari only includes one report of a miraculous nature only, and it's, it's the one report in his Sira that does not have that later political uh, contextualization but that does relate Muhammad's private meeting with his kin his miraculous division of food and drink and his uh, you know asking for help and accepting Ali's help but that's it out of as I said over a hundred reports he really minimizes the political element of the story in his Tafsir, and instead focuses on other uh, elements of these verses that have nothing to do with anything controversial uh, at all. And so we see him really differentiating his treatment of something as, you know, controversial as this event in his Sira, where he gives it a bit more leeway, uh, and in his Tafsir, where he really strictly controls it, and so you get the sense that for Tabari, this was not something that was acceptable to him to be discussed at length in his tafsir. He didn't really see that genre as being useful or appropriate for that kind of discussion. And for Ibn Kathir however, his really just vitriolic anti-Shia viewpoint is almost identical between the genres of Sira and Tafsir. In fact, it, it, it's his. he includes the same reports, the same arguments, and his focus is not the differentiation of genre. He is focused more on denying the Shia any potential support for their arguments that Ali should have immediately succeeded Muhammad. And so you really get a sense in this, part, especially, of this connection between the two authors, between Tabari and Ibn Kathir, and their own historical milieu. You know, for Tabari, it's, uh, you know, yes, the Shia or the Alid and Abbasid uh, rift is quite real. But for Ibn Kathir, it's very much a, a Sunni, as opposed to a Shia, uh perspective of these events. And that's the argument that he's putting forward. And so that really ends the uh, the Meccan period. Uh,
1: of and
0: go ahead, sorry.
1: Oh, I was going to follow up real quick. Uh, you actually, in your introduction, uh, do discuss some of the background of both uh, Tabari and uh, Ibn Kathir related to their perspectives on the uh, the Shia. And sort of, uh, kind of address some of their background related to that. So that probably figures into, you know, besides their their writings being able being uh, displaying their feelings, but there was also a lot of other background information related to their attitudes towards the Shia in your introductory as well. I believe.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Tabari had been accused of having Shi'i sympathies. Um, to the point where at, 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 at one time he actually had to go defend himself in person to the Khalif Chamberlain uh, mm-hmm. and, and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not a Shia. And, and, and so the, the fact that, that this was not just viewed as, as kind of a dry scholarly uh, attempt, but had very real consequences uh, for Tabri in in the real world. So you've got this this issue. Also, Tabari had written other works that were being used by the Shia of his day to support their own arguments, so this also gets Tabari into a little bit of trouble with the Abbasid rulers. And Ibn Kathir, when we get to his time, I mean, we definitely have a resurgence of the Shia. You know, the Mongols, when they converted to Islam, uh, they started to show favoritism toward uh, Shia Islam as opposed to Sunni Islam. And, and, and so we see uh, Ibn Taymiyyah uh, in his own time dealing with this, and Ibn Kathir certainly deals with this as well. And to the point where Ibn Kathir is, actually serves on a panel of judges who uh, condemn a man to death in Damascus for going to the Great Mosque and publicly criticizing or insulting the first three uh, caliphs and, uh, and 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 uh, Muawiyah, oddly enough, the, the the first of the Umayyad uh, caliphs. And so this man is is arrested, and Ibn Kathir serves on this panel of judges. And he, you know, he is one of the men who agrees to put this man to death for these views. And and we see with Ibn Kathir, I mean, he his one of his major concerns is this this competition, if you will, between uh, Shia and Sunni Islam.
1: Interesting and then as uh, we transition out of the uh, Meccan period into the Medinan period, um, I be- correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you know the overall events involving supernatural seem to uh, escalate and so uh, are there more occurrences of sort of supernatural events in this period?
0: Oh absolutely, and, and this is one thing, a lot of modern scholars had discounted the reports from the Meccan period because they claimed, you know, there's so many legendary stories, stories of a supernatural uh, nature that, oh you know, it's, it's obvious that, that these stories were just being made up, and so instead they point to the Medinan period. Oh look, you had more people who, uh, who knew Muhammad in this period, who lived after Muhammad's death to relate these accounts. And yet, if you really sit down and do the numbers, there are exponentially more miracle stories for the 10 years that Madonna or that, that, that Muhammad spends in Medina uh, than there is for, you know, his whole life uh, up to the Hydra in Mecca. And it, it, you know, admittedly, it may be that if you look at the ratio of, overall reports for the Medinan period uh, that perhaps the ratio is the same but uh, you know my sense of it is is that you know you just kind of have to look at, at the numbers that you've you've got just this enormously huge increase in the number of miracle stories for Muhammad's Medinan period and you really do see a change in the quality of these miracle stories so when Muhammad before he receives the first revelation these miracles happen to him or for him but you don't really see him acting as an agent uh in these accounts once he receives the first revelation in in mecca you start to see him exercising a bit of his own control over the supernatural but when he gets to medina it's only in medina that we see healing stories where Muhammad is able to heal uh, some of his followers, typically those who have been wounded in battle or, you know, on some uh, errand for Muhammad. And we also see a sharp increase in Muhammad's clairvoyant knowledge of events. And so we, we see not only the number of miracles, but also the type of miracles. Uh, really changed to reflect Muhammad's increasing, uh, not only his his increasing power over uh, an expanding community, but also uh, an increase in how he's portrayed as having power over the supernatural element of his role as prophet.
1: Mm-hmm. And so then the uh, first uh, the first uh, story that you address in this uh, Medinan period. Uh, you deal with the theme of betrayal in part three of your work.
0: Right. And in, in this story, Muhammad is getting ready to go and conquer Mecca. So he's already gone through the battles of Badr and Uhud and, and the battle of the ditch. And he's, he's already had his dealings with uh, the three major Jewish tribes. So he's, he's, he's sort of at the, 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 point where he has mastered control over Medina itself, and now it's time for him to expand that and and, and go back and, and take Mecca and really uh, fulfill that particular part of his role as Prophet. But during these preparations, he, you know, Tabri and Ibn Kathir both relate this uh, report from an earlier author, Ibn Ishak, that says that Muhammad received a warning from heaven that one of his companions had written a letter to the Meccans uh, warning them of Muhammad's impending attack. And so, right when you, you think that Muhammad is, you know, he's, he's on top, he, he's about to go take Mecca and he's consolidated his control over Medina, we have this act of betrayal by someone who is described by both Tabri and Ibn Kathir as a person who's been with him from the beginning, who made the Hydra from Mecca to Medina, who fought in the Battle of Badr. And the interesting thing about this, this person, Hatib ibn Abi Battara, is that when you look at Ibn Kathir and al-Tabri's account of the Hydra, and when you look at their accounts of the Battle of Badr, you don't see this person's name at all. So we really get a sense that perhaps uh, Hatib is perhaps a, a literary figure, that that he you know, rather than having this nice, long uh, sort of reputation in the story, that this is almost the first time that we hear about him. Now we we, we get a couple of little blurbs um, before this particular incident but but really not much and so you know it, it it it's almost like this is a contrived event where you have somebody who is ostensibly one of the most important uh, earliest followers of Muhammad betraying him at this pivotal moment and so Tabari and Ibn Kathir both they really focus on this issue now for Tabari he really only relates this in one report from Ibn Ishaq that Ibn Kathir relates a few other reports uh, that give variations on this story. But Tabri here, by only relating this one report, is exercising a bit of control over the narrative. Because we see that once we get to his tafsir, that there are a number of other reports he could have used uh, but opted not to. And and so it's this Again, this choice that Tabri is making between these two genres. So Hatib writes this letter, he gives it to a woman, she, you know, tucks the letter up in her hair and is on her way to deliver this warning to the Meccans. Now the reason that Hatib gives for betraying the Prophet at this pivotal moment is that he was not actually of the Quraysh, that he was a client and so that when the other uh, Muslims make the hijrah from Mecca to Medina, that they had family members in Mecca who could protect their loved ones and their property that was left behind. But since he was not officially a member of the tribe, he could not count on the same level of protection. He left a wife and children behind. He left property behind, and so you know he tells Muhammad once he's caught and brought before Muhammad. That, you know, I, I'm still a Muslim. I'm still, you know, believe in you, but I wanted to make sure that the Meccans would protect my family. And here we have this really interesting divergence. You've got Muhammad and Umar, and you've got Hatib, who's brought before him, and Umar is encouraging Muhammad to kill him. He says, nope, he's a hypocrite, he betrayed you kill him. And Muhammad says, hold on, how do you know? You know, maybe God looked down on those who fought at Badr and said, do what you will for I've already forgiven you. And so the story, the, the narrative element of the story ends there. And so the idea is that Muhammad is definitely leaning towards forgiveness. And yet, many of these reports that we have connected to this story then bring up the, the, the uh, argument that certain verses of the Quran are re- uh, revealed regarding this event that contradict Muhammad's uh, desire to forgive Khantib. And instead, they point to the story of Abraham and his followers and how Abraham's followers were correct. To tell those closest to them, look, we don't want anything to do with you until you believe in God alone. And the, and in these Quran verses, they say that Abraham was not correct in telling his father, who was not a, a believer, that he would pray for him, but he, you know, didn't really know how much good it would do. And so when only these Four verses of the Quran from Surah 60 uh, are put together with the story. It seems that the Quran is contradicting Muhammad's desire to forgive Hatim. Now Tabari, in his Tafsir of these verses, does include a report that extends the number of verses connected to this event to the first seven verses of Surah 60 and that changes the whole tone of the story where instead of uh, you know seemingly critical of Muhammad's desire to forgive Hatib it instead supports it because then you have the followers of Abraham saying okay you know first they're saying get away from us we don't want anything to do with you but then it allows for the possibility Of friendship between the believers and the unbelievers or the possibility that the unbelievers will eventually become believers and that you know again it goes back to this this theme of the power of God only God knows and so only God should be the one to uh, criticize so the the regular believers and then this connects to Umar's role in the story you know, they they should not take on the role of God in, in judging uh, their fellow human beings. And and Tabri is the only one of the two that, that includes the story. Ibn Kathir, he portrays his own interpretation of the story very differently. In his Tafsir, he includes an introduction where he specifically states Muhammad received his warning from heaven in response to a prayer that he had said previously saying, you know, God, we're, we're getting ready to go take Mecca. Please uh, keep all news of this uh, away from the Quraysh's eyes and ears. And, and Ibn Kathir is the only one to really connect this prayer to the miracle of Muhammad's knowledge about this letter. And Ibn Kathir goes on and says, in you know, in his introduction, in this part of his Tafsir, that that Hadim was a good Muslim, that he supported Muhammad's uh, designs to go take Mecca, and the, but that he was concerned about his family and his property in Mecca. So you see, Atari and Ibn Kathir both supporting this idea of forgiveness, but doing it in different ways in the different genres that they're working in, and so. You also have sort of the added complexity, at least as far as Tabri is concerned, of chronology. So you have this whole idea that Hatib's letter may not have been originally connected to Muhammad's uh, planned conquest of Mecca, but to the earlier event at Al Hudaybiyah, where Muhammad goes to uh, to go to Mecca, but he's forestalled by the Quraysh at Al Hudaybiyah, and and so you have the issue of chronology, and, and so you really get a sense that, you know, Tabari and Ibn in his own way uh, connects Hatib to, to Hudaybiya, but, but via different reports, and so this, you get the sense that both of these men have this received body of reports, and they've got to figure out what to do with them and you have these contradictory reports. and I think by the time we get to Tabri, the timeline, the perceived timeline of events in Muhammad's life have been pretty much, uh, you know, this is what happened at this point and then this happened and then this happened. And so Tabri takes this contradictory report and he just kind of puts it in there without, again, without comment, just Okay, here it is. Now, Ibn Kathir is a little more argumentative. He, you know, he tries to, uh, through that introduction, definitely tries to connect Khatib uh, to the the final conquest of Mecca uh, and not so uh, firmly to that earlier event at, at Hudaybiyah. But both men do uh, sort of connect him to that. So that shows... A, a sort of uncertainty uh, on both men's parts about the chronological aspect of this particular event, but you also then have this larger theme of forgiveness. And both Tabari and Ibn Kathir they really portray Muhammad as the forgiving prophet. So when Muhammad does go and take uh, Mecca, you know there are some individuals that he says, you know, even if they're hiding under the curtains of the Kaaba, they should be killed. But even these people, if they're able to sort of avoid Muhammad's followers who would kill them, if they're able to get to Muhammad himself or to send a representative and ask for forgiveness, in every case, Muhammad forgives them. And it's only those who are not able to get to Muhammad uh, or to send a representative that are eventually killed. And so we definitely see this connection to this theme of Muhammad as the forgiving prophet, even when you've got both Tabri and Kathir potentially showing that Quran uh, or, or God is, is not in favor of that. So you really do get a sense of Muhammad as, as an independent person there who has his own desires, his own thoughts. And certainly how Tabri and Ibigthier portray this uh, and how they sort of come to grips with it in their own way.
1: Interesting. So then moving on to the uh, final story of uh, your book, this is actually, um, you know, when you first hear about it, it's rather interesting because it does have to do with a rather, at least in my interpretation, a rather traumatic event because it deals with an, a, an assassination attempt, correct?
0: Oh, sure, yeah, so you've got, after Muhammad conquers Mecca, you have this period known as the Year of Tribal Delegations, where all of these tribes are like, well, alright, Muhammad is the, you know, he's the, the big guy on the block, let's go make a deal with, with Muhammad. And this one tribe, their, their tribal delegation, they're described right away as uh, troublemakers. Uh, they, they, they did not come to negotiate with Muhammad. Instead, they came to, uh, with plans to kill Muhammad. And so you've got these, these two men, Amr ibn al Tafil and uh, Arbad uh, ibn Kays, and, and they plot to kill muhammad and in each of the reports in both tabri and ibn kathir you have the men approaching muhammad and in some of the reports you've got amr attempting to negotiate with muhammad saying okay well look if i convert what will you give me and so they you have this back and forth with amr asking for all of these things and muhammad saying no and, and Muhammad basically says, you're going to get what everybody else gets, you know, just because you're a big shot in your own tribe doesn't mean you're better than any of the other believers. And so, of course, Amr is not willing to accept this. And he threatens Muhammad with, you know, raising an army against him. And Muhammad alternately, depending on the report, either says God will stop you or he prays to God for protection against Amr ibn al And so the men go away and then they decide, okay, let's go back. Then we're, you know, we're just going to kill him. And so Amr is supposed to distract Muhammad while Arbad then is supposed to pull his sword and kill Muhammad. And again, depending on the report, you've got different reasons why this assassination attempt fails. Either uh, Arbad claims that Amr was constantly in his way, and then Amr, in Tabri's account, uh, gives poetry. And Amr actually was a a famous poet uh, who was, oddly enough, revered by uh, later generations of Muslims as this great poet. Um, But he says in these verses that, you know, the Prophet sent what you saw, basically saying that Muhammad had cast an illusion that made it look as though Amr was constantly in the way, even though he wasn't. In other reports, Arbad claims that his hand became too dry and so he could not draw his sword out of its scabbard. At times, in some reports he says that he felt as though he were stuck in a quagmire uh, and and so was unable to draw his sword. In some reports, he, he starts to draw the sword and Muhammad sees the reflection of light off of the sword, sees what he's about to do and leaves, thereby not quite miraculously, but still saving his own life. So you you have most of the reports support a supernatural element to the, the failure of this assassination attempt, uh, where you have a, a minority of the reports just have Muhammad sort of turning and seeing uh, what's going on? Now the two men leave, and ostensibly to go and raise this army, and they separate. And so, honor is in. Uh, he stops at a woman's house, and he he develops this growth in his throat, like a tumor. And very quickly, you know, by the next day or whatever, he's dead of this tumor. Arbad survives long enough to go in most of the reports, to go back to his own people. He tells them that, that Amr is dead. He tells them that Muhammad had, you know, invited them, them to something. And then he basically reiterates his desire to kill Muhammad. And so later he and his camel are struck by lightning. And so you definitely get the sense by both Tabri and Ibn Kathir that these are divine punishments. That whereas in The previous section, Hatib had asked for forgiveness and received forgiveness. In this last section, Amr and Arbat are not asking for forgiveness. They remain very recalcitrant, uh, very adamant in their their opposition to Muhammad. And so both of these men are punished quite spectacularly uh, by God and and with with, great finality. They're both dead and eventually their, their tribe uh, does uh, become Muslim and, and you know, they're incorporated later into the community of believers. But so you've got this theme of divine wrath and it's really, you know, we see this at the end of Muhammad's life. He's only, you know, he's only got a, a year or so left to live after this and we see this concern for the community of believers. So if their assassination attempt had been successful at this very pivotal moment, the uh, community would have been left without a leader. And so you've got Muhammad sort of not only at the pinnacle of his uh, political and military power, but you've also got him at the pinnacle of his supernatural power in that it's merely his statement, God will stop you, or a prayer to God to stop them, that results in uh, these men's very spectacular deaths. And so you've got then too this connection between, you know, what is it that's going on? Is this supernatural? Is this, you know, merely Muhammad caught a lucky break and these were coincidences. And you've got Tabri and Imākathir both again in their own way across these two genres of seer and tafsir, putting forward their own interpretation of events Ibn Kathir, again, with an introduction in his tafsir, saying, you know what, this is definitely from God. This is punishment from God. God, you know, through this miracle, uh, saved Muhammad's life, and then through direct divine intervention, killed these two men. Whereas Tabari. In the two genres, he's very certain. Again, only one report in the Sirah, so again, he's exercising a certain amount of control. In the Tafsir, we see a very different perspective. Tabri in the Sirah does not quote a verse from the Quran in relation to this story. But if you look at the verses that are traditionally connected to this story in his, uh, in his exegesis, you see that there are a number of different possible reasons for why these verses were uh, revealed. Either, you know, someone was uh, asked Muhammad about the nature of God, and specifically in a material sense, is God made of, you know, gold or silver or rubies, and this person is then struck by lightning, you know, killed for even suggesting such a thing. And so then you've got the story of, of Arbad and of Amr, and so the, the story in Tabri's Tafsir is only one of many possibilities to connect to these verses of the Quran. And so this explains, I mean, it's really, for me, shows that Tabri is trying to be very careful here. So he's not connecting the Quran verse in the sirah to this story because he's not really sure that this is the story where these verses were revealed. And so it's in his Tafsir, where he's talking about the verses themselves, that he puts forward all of these different possibilities. And for both authors, for Tabri and Kathir too, we get, especially in their works of Tafsir, this connection to the element of folk magic, and this idea that if you follow the example of Muhammad, that you can, you know, that the average believer can enjoy some of that same divine protection. So you have some reports of mu- what Muhammad would say or do when he heard, when he saw lightning or heard thunder. And in both Tabri and Kathir you have this report where Muhammad says, if you say, you know, basically, if you put in this request for God to protect you, if you do what I'm doing, then the lightning won't hit you, you know, the thunderbolt will not get you. And so you have uh, in both authors, and, and a little more strongly in Ibn Kathir, this element of folk magic, this idea that, you know, not just that, I mean, it's very important for Muslims to follow the normative uh, model of Muhammad, but we also see the introduction of this into the supernatural element as well. If you say the same prayer that Muhammad said, then you you will enjoy some of the same supernatural protection that Muhammad enjoyed as prophet of God. And so we see this, too, sort of representing Muhammad at the height of uh, not only his uh, political and military power, but also his supernatural uh, power as well.
1: Um. One thing that struck me as somewhat interesting is the uh, story of Amr and his death in terms of uh, the in his throat. And yet he was a poet. So his power came from his speech. And it was I, I found that very striking that that was, you know, his demise came from whereas you know, this distraction was supposed to come from as well
0: that's that's actually a really good point i I hadn't really made that connection um but yeah he was he was important as a poet in his i mean ostensibly in his own time, but we also have his poetry being collected and recited um you know well into the Abbasid period and so i I always thought it was sort of odd that that you have someone who died because he was trying <laughs> to kill the prophet <laughs> being respected for his, you know, pre-Islamic poetry.
1: Yes, very highly unusual. Um, well, that's great. Um, thank you so much for leading us through those those stories uh, that you really highlighted through your work. And, you know, kind of, you know, in terms of wrapping everything up, you know, one thing that I seem to notice is that there seems to be, you know, broadly saying that Tabari seemed to take a very um, very ne- neutral position in a lot of times or maybe not even a position so much as leaving things open most often whereas Ibn Kathir seemed in a lot of his cases to seem to come to a little bit more of a definitive opinion in some circumstances how would you what would you say regarding that
0: I well, I would definitely agree I I mean Tabari is sort of frustratingly infamous among modern scholars for not, especially in his era, for not really putting forward his own interpretation of events. So you have to kind of dig a little deeper into the structure of these, of how he presents these events to try to sort of suss out what it is he, he's, he's trying to, to say. And But yeah, I mean, he's, he's also well known for, for putting forward these contradictory reports. And, and I think that really does reflect a certain amount of confidence on, on his part that, you know, I, it's okay for me to put these very contradictory reports out there because, you know, the believers are going to come to the right conclusion. You know, it's, it, it's all, it's going to be okay. And yet Ibn Kathir is his tone throughout both his Sira and his tafsir. He's very defensive. And so, you know, we definitely see Ibn Kathir trying to much more rigidly control you know and 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 say okay this is the only appropriate interpretation of these events or of these verses of the Quran and and so i think that you know either that reflects a, a defensiveness of islamic civilization itself or it could simply be because even Qasir because he was, he had this connection to Ibn Taymiyyah, you know, there is this huge controversy in Damascus between the leaders of uh, his own Shafi'i Mahab and, you know, his uh, loyalty to the movement of Ibn Taymiyyah. And so this defensiveness could simply be Ibn Kathir's own, you know, a reflection more of his own individual uh, struggle in uh, Damascus in this period. And I think that really um yeah, I, I think Tabari gives these alternatives, these choices, whereas Ibn Zir is very rigidly trying to control the interpretation that his audience uh comes away with uh from these these accounts. And and actually while I'll be honest, reading Ibn Kathir's accounts, I I really didn't like him very much, (laughs) but because I had such a hard time finding uh, modern studies of him, that's what I've opted for my second um, project, for the next book project. So, um, Ibn Kathir, there, there aren't any monograph length studies of Ibn Kathir. And uh, I think that in his introductions to his works, and, and again for the first book, I, I focused on his, his work of history and his work of exegesis, he really is strongly arguing in favor of Ibn Taymiyyah's. Program of reform, this reliance on the Qur'an and only on authoritative hadith as found in the, uh, the, author- the six books, uh, and he adds uh, support for Ahmed ibn Humble's Musnad as well. But if you dig into the body of these works, you see that he just can't, because too many of those sources don't support his own interpretation of these events, and so for uh, the next book project, I really wanted to expand my study of of his entire corpus of works and see if this holds true across the number of different genres that he writes in. If this holds true in his legal decisions, if it holds true in his uh, biographical dictionary, and and you know because I, as I said originally, I really just didn't like him. But then I kind of came to this realization that, you know, for Ibn Kathir, his his world is changing and he's not quite sure how to deal with it. I mean, you've got the fall of the Abbasid dynasty, you've got the coming of the Mongols, you've got the Mamluks, and so this is this really intense period of flux, and not to mention, you know, the rise of Sufism and, and you know, the rising importance of, of you know, quote-unquote popular religious beliefs and practices, and this heightened tension between the Shia and the Sunni. And so, for Ibn kathir this defensiveness that I had at first interpreted as being quite obnoxious, um, I now am starting to see as, you know, he's, he's afraid, you know, he's not sure anymore that the, the community of believers as he sees them will make the right decision. And so he's trying to make sure that they interpret these things in what he sees as, you know, the correct way. And so, you know, we'll see how my research sort of plays out when I look at his other works a little more deeply.
1: <laughs> well, we will definitely look forward to uh, hearing about that work sometime on the, the New Books Network uh, for Islamic Studies in the future, I think, though,
0: I'll look forward to talking about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've taken up quite a bit of uh, your time today. But, you know, thank you very much for talking with us and sharing, you know, your uh, work with everybody here on the New Books Network.
0: Thanks for having
1: me. Thank you very much, and have a good day, Rebecca.
0: All right, thanks. You too, Matt.
1: Thank you for joining us as we spoke with Professor Rebecca Williams about her book, Muhammad and the Supernatural. Please stay tuned to the New Books Network Islamic Studies section for a new interview that will be posted in the upcoming weeks. Also, make sure to check out some of our other channels at the New Books Network. Thank you very much.